Well, hi, everyone. Uh, which direction are you travelling in? Now, you might be thinking, don't be ridiculous, Marshall. We're not going anywhere. Uh, during lockdown, the furthest I've travelled is from the kitchen to the bathroom and perhaps the bedroom. But I'm talking about your life direction. Life is often described as a journey. And it reflects a reality that whether we're conscious of it or not, we're all headed somewhere. Actually, we can narrow it down more specifically than that because the Bible makes it clear and it comes out in our passage today that there are only two directions that we can go in, and that's either towards God or away from him, which is towards the world towards Satan and the beast. Or as it puts it here in our passage today in Revelation, the direction we go in is who we worship. And again, there are only two options. We can either worship God or we can worship Satan. The choice is that stark. And, friends, this is the most important choice that we will ever make. It's a choice of life and death. It determines whether we end up in the presence of God, protected by Jesus' blood, or whether we end up on the receiving end of God's wrath, anger, and judgment. Let's pray as we come to the passage today. Father, you remind us in today's passage that we are in the middle of a war. But as we've seen before, it's a war that you've already won. You, a war that Jesus, the lamb who was slain, has won that war. Help us to persevere in hope and assurance and worship you alone. Challenge us and encourage us through your word today. Amen. Well, in Revelation 13 and 14, our story revolves around two key figures and one message, and there are three points. One, that there are two beasts on the one side, and on the other side there is Jesus, the Lamb of God. And then our third point is the message that we all have to respond to We are one way or the other, and that's the eternal gospel that we either accept or reject. So our first point, uh, we, the, the uh, passage starts off in Chapter 13 with two beasts. Remember last week in chapter 12, the dragon, Satan, went off to wage war against God's people. Well, chapter 13 is showing us how he does that. And he used, does it through his two lieutenants, through the two beasts. The first beast is introduced in the first couple of verses, 13 verse 1. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea, it had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Well, the background to this vision of this beast is the prophet Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. Uh, in that vision, Daniel actually sees four beasts, three of them like a lion, a leopard, and a bear. 
uh, echoing this passage. But here in chapter in Revelation, they are all packed up, packed into the one beast. In Daniel, the beasts represent four kings who make war on God's people. And that's what the beast does here as well. Have a look at 13 verse 7. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. So the two beasts described in this passage, who are these two beasts? Well, if you are getting the letter of the, the letter that is this book of Revelation, uh, written by John as a first century Christian, you would almost certainly have seen the first beast as the Roman emperor and the second beast as the priest who urges people to, uh, to worship the Roman emperor. But as we've seen before in Revelation, these beasts aren't just reflecting one particular figure. They're actually countless rulers and powers through the ages that Satan has used and continues to use to deceive and to keep the world under his thumb. Sometimes it's in the form of a tyrant. Sometimes it's a Hitler or a Stalin. But other times it's very ordinary-looking governments and societies that deceive and turn people away from worship of the true God. Well, the first beast we see in our passage does two things. The first thing is that he has power to conquer God's people. This is the ongoing story of Satan's war against the church, which he continues to wage today. As we've seen before in Revelation, that means persecution for the church and suffering and perhaps even death. Have a look at verse 10. If anyone goes into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with the sword they will be killed. That's a pretty bleak picture. The promise that we as God's people will be conquered and perhaps even killed for our faith. And you may be thinking, hang on, wasn't the boot meant to be on the other foot just the chapter before in chapter 12? Weren't we told there that we conquered the dragon by the blood of the lamb? What kind of hollow victory is this that we end up against the wall of a firing squad for believing in Jesus? Well, hold on to that thought because we will get an answer when we come to chapter 14. But first, let's look at the second thing that the beast does, and that is he causes the whole earth to worship him uh, and the dragon. Have a look at uh, chapter 13, verse 3. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? And the second beast as well. Have a look, jump down to 13 verse 12. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. The beasts don't wage war against the world like they do against God's people. 
because the world is already under their control. The people of the world worship the beast and the dragon. It's a bit like in World War II. Uh, if you know anything about uh, the, the history of the European war, war in Europe, Germany conquered France. After Germany conquered France, it became known as Vichy France, uh, under German control, occupied France. They were no longer at war with Germany because they'd been defeated. They were now under German control. The world is allowed to live at peace with the beasts because the world has already been defeated. It's occupied, it's conquered. The dragon and the beasts have won. The world now marches to Satan's tune. It's a war that's fought and won, not with physical weapons, but with worship. Satan and his minions have set themselves up as false gods, false messiahs, in competition with the true and living God. Notice that the first beast mimics the lamb who was slain. Um, in 13 verse 3, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. And then the second beast performed signs and miracles that deceived the people and make the first beast into a false messiah who conquered death. Uh, 13 verse 13, and to perform great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honour of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And then the first beast is given authority over the earth in a way that seems to echo the authority of King Jesus. Verse 7, it was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. I think that language is a deliberate echo of the Great Commission that Jesus gave his disciples in Matthew 18, 28, 18 to 20, where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So the picture painted here is of Satan and his beast deceiving the world to turn to, to turn to them in false worship, using false miracles, masquerading as a false messiah and saviour. Now, sometimes we see that played out in our world with people turning to religion as a vague kind of spirituality. Particularly popular is a version that rejects the idea of the narrow exclusive claims of Christianity, where we can have a sense of hope in a vague spiritual force behind the universe, but it doesn't demand anything of us, doesn't condemn anything. It just gives a spiritual stamp of approval to our dreams and ambitions, a false gospel with a false hope. But very often people are deceived into worshipping a material God. Uh, in the pandemic, as, as an example, Australia appropriately is now trying as hard as we can to get immunised. That's a good thing. In the meantime, we are, again appropriately, doing all we can to try to get 
infection numbers down under control through the lockdown. But in the media, from the politicians and the health experts, that's where the conversation ends, isn't it? Our salvation is in the science, is in our efforts to control the pandemic. No one who wants to be taken seriously mentions God or turning to him or repenting or pleading for deliverance from the pandemic. As a society, what we trust in, what we follow, what we worship is science, the economy, human wisdom, even human nature. Satan has the world under his control. Now, if we tell people that they're worshipping Satan, they'll probably laugh at us. But Revelation makes it clear that there are only two options. Either we worship God and go his way, or we worship Satan, whether people recognise it or not. Well, my second point is that on the other side of the battle from Satan and the beasts is the lamb. Have a look at chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and there before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Satan, we saw, stands on the, on the shore of the sea. The lamb stands on Mount Zion, God's holy mountain, and with him, 144,000. Instead of being marked with the, uh, marked by the beast with 666, like uh, the, the world who followed the beast, the Lamb's people are marked with the Father's name. The beasts use deception and economic coercion to turn people to follow Satan, but the Lamb's people are singing a song, freely and joyfully worshipping the Lamb. A deliberate contrast is set up between these two sides. The number of those on Mount Zion, 144,000, contrasted with the multitudes from every tribe and every nation from, uh, from people all over the world. Uh, it's a stark contrast. Uh, but this number is symbolic. It probably rep represents the 12 tribes of Israel multiplied by 12 meaning all God's people both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, multiplied by a thousand, meaning a great multitude. This represents all God's people across time. And it goes on to describe what they're like. Have a look at verse 4. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remain virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, I don't think that means they are literally all virgins. I think this is a metaphor for staying pure in their faith. It's a way of saying that they stayed faithful to God and worshipped him alone. They have followed the Lamb wherever he goes. That's what it means for us to worship Jesus, to follow him, to walk in obedience to God as he did. 
Jesus said we are to take up our cross and to follow him, to die to self, putting his ways before our ways. Friends, the picture of the saints with the lamb on Mount Zion singing joyfully is one that should fill us with hope and joy because you are there among those 144,000. This is your future if you're a believer. Now, you may be thinking, ah, I'm not sure I passed the test because I sometimes lie and I'm not without sin, I'm not blameless. But that's not the way God sees you. He sees you as being clean. He sees you as being perfect, unblemished, not because you're good, but because Jesus, the, the lamb, is perfect. And it's his blood that is the perfect sacrifice that washes away your sin and mine. As a result, this passage gives us a wonderful assurance that we are sealed as belonging to the Father. Have a look back in chapter 13, verse 8. Uh, this is uh, in the middle of the passage describing the power that the beast has over the world. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. The people of this world who worship the beast and not God don't have their names written in the Book of Life, but we do. The name of every believer is written in that book and has been since the creation of the world. Friends, I can't think of anything that could make our salvation more certain than that. It was God's plan from the time he flung the stars into space to make you his child. But the fact that we have such a wonderful assurance doesn't mean that we sit back and do nothing. The New Testament pattern is always to, to, uh, to show us how we have been saved, past tense, completely by what God has done for us. And now, in response to that, we are to work out our salvation. And that's what we find here in Revelation as well. So we saw earlier that in uh, chapter 13, verse 10, there is the grim prospect of persecution for God's people. Some will be taken captive. Others will be slain by the sword. Then there is a statement about how we are to respond to that. Have a look in verse 10. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. The phrase comes up again in chapter 14. After the awful fate of those who worship Satan and the beast is described, bearing the full brunt of God's wrath, it says in 14 verse 12, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. In response to persecution, we are to patiently put up with it. We are to keep going and be faithful by continuing to worship Jesus. In the light of the reality of judgment, we are to keep going and be faithful, to keep following Jesus. 
because we know that our future is different, because we have that hope. We aren't just slaving away for this life. We have a sure hope of eternity with God, and compared with that, any present suffering is temporary and passing. It's worth persevering for the prize that awaits us at the end. Now, at this point, as we're dealing with suffering and persecution, I want to come back, to, as I promised, to that idea of the beast conquering God's people. And how does that sit with Chapter 12 that said that God's people have conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb? Well, the conquest by the beast is to kill the body. But the real war isn't over flesh and blood at all, but it's a war about worship. And the real victory is in God's people continuing to worship, even though it cost them their lives. And the real victory is eternal because they may lose their life here on earth, but their names are written for eternity in God's book of life. So the beast may be allowed to conquer the body, but the real victory has been won by the lamb and his people. Well, we've seen that we're in the middle of a war, a war between God and Satan, a war over worship. Will people worship God or will they worship Satan? And our final point we see that is that in this war, God holds out a word of life to the world, a call to follow him and a warning for those who don't. And that word is the eternal gospel. Have a look with me at 14 verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair. And he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea and the springs of water. This is the gospel of Jesus. This is the good news that each of us who trust in Jesus has heard and responded to, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and mine, that he offers free forgiveness that leads to eternal life. Here we see that same gospel, but what's emphasised isn't forgiveness but judgment. It's the same message, the same gospel, but with a focus on escaping judgment through Jesus. And I want to finish by bringing out two things we learn about God from this proclamation, escape judgment and defined life. And so Ezekiel 18.23 says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? And then a bit further down in 1832, for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. The Old Testament is full of warning after warning, 
prophet after prophet, pleading with Israel, turn back to God and be saved. And when we come to the New Testament as well, Jesus, knowing that he is about to be betrayed by his own people, handed over to, about to be handed over to death, he looks out over Jerusalem and he weeps. He weeps for them that they might turn to God and be saved. And so here in Revelation 14, God is shouting a final warning to a stubborn world. Listen, fear God, worship him and be saved from the coming judgment. And notice in verse 6, it's a warning to every nation, every tribe, every language, every people. You can hear the echo of the beast's authority over every tribe and nation back in chapter 13. God wants to reclaim that world from the beast as his own. He wants to restore worship to where it belongs, to the one who made the heavens and the earth. Even in the middle of this chapter about judgment, we see that God is merciful. Even though every single person on the face of the earth deserves the fearful judgment that's described in the verses that follow, drinking the wine of God's fury, tormented with burning sulphur, verse 10. God holds out a way of escape, a free pardon through the blood of Jesus. And above all else, friends, this ought to drive us to our knees in gratitude because you deserve to be facing judgment and so do I. But we haven't got what we deserved, have we? Instead, what we got is mercy. We got God's gracious, undeserved forgiveness. And the second point we see about God here is that judgment is just. That's a hard truth for us to swallow because we live in a society that says judgment and hell, even sin, are outdated, irrelevant, even barbaric ideas, unpalatable for people who refuse to believe in a God who punishes. If they believe in God at all, then it's a loving God who is never angry. He only ever smiles at us and never frowns. Friends, I haven't got time to do justice to this question, but I just want to make one brief point. We saw in verse 7 that the angel urges people to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. When we fail to do that, when we ignore God and turn our back on him, it's not just being agnostic or somehow being neutral about God, it's a monumental act of ingratitude towards the one who knit us together, who gave us breath, who day by day gives us every good gift that we need and enjoy. Now, there's no good analogy to illustrate failing to worship God. The nearest I could come up with is imagine Divorcing your parents, your mum and dad who love you dearly. 
They sacrifice so much through blood, sweat and tears uh, from the cradle, uh, through, through growing up in school with your education, your well-being. They've bent over backwards to take you to weekend sport. They've spent countless amount of money looking after you. But then the day that you turn 18, you get up, you walk out of the house, you issue them with a certificate of divorce and declare that not only you cut yourself off from them, you want nothing to do with them, but now you hate them and you are their enemy. That's a pale reflection of what we've all done to God. So this judgment makes us cringe and recoil in horror. But the point I'm trying to make is that this judgment is totally just. It's totally what we deserve. So how should we respond to this reality of judgment? We need to take this eternal gospel to a drowning, desperate world. We need to take these warnings seriously. We need to believe that who we worship isn't just a lifestyle choice. It isn't just a question of choosing a path that suits me. Friends, this is a matter of life and death. We need to hold out the word of life to a desperate world. We need to follow the Lamb to make sure that we ourselves are there worshipping the Lamb on Mount Zion on that day and to do our best to bring others with us. Amen.